practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. This year, 2020, let's say, is the year of change. There's been quite a lot of change in my life. There's been quite a lot of change with the podcast. And there's one more change that I'd like to bring to the podcast. One thing that I realized is that the podcast is all about the people, right? Hence the name, the People of Veterinary Medicine Podcast. But if I think about it, I've been spending anywhere from two and a half to five minutes before each episode talking, which makes it about me. And it's not really about me. It's about the guest. And so this is my last introduction before we start doing just straight, allowing you to get straight to the meat of the episode and not wasting your time or hopefully not having you uh, fast forward through me talking as to why I think the episode is important in your car and hopefully saving you some time. So if you don't listen to this episode and you're listening to newer episodes and coming back and you're wondering why the format changed, sorry you didn't listen in sequential order and hear this. So with that being said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security. I know, I've heard it time and time again. I don't have any data that's of any value. Why would anybody want to attack my practice? I'm just some practice in the middle of some small town in America. There's no way anybody's going to seek my practice out. The scary thing is, is that cyber attacks are like a waterfall. Think about a river. It flows downstream and it just looks for the the path of least resistance. The same can be said for cyber attacks. Cyber attacks are like the waterfall. They just look for the path of least resistance. So if you aren't taking your cybersecurity serious in your practice, you are the path of least resistance. So if you have questions or you need some help shoring up the security at your practice, check us out at www.luca.vet. That's www.luca.vet. pet desk and so to kind of hear you and hear your story I think would be really cool and kind of really exciting to get to, to dig into so for people that don't know who you are tell us a little bit about your background how did you get involved in vet med who is Taylor oh yeah um thanks for having me Clint I really appreciate it uh yeah so I um so I'm Taylor Cavanaugh and uh, one of the founders of, of pet desk um the CEO and uh the the way we got into it is it's, it's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it quick. Um, so my, my two best friends and I, so Ken Chu and Aaron Bannister, um, we we got together and decided to build a social location platform. Uh, if you remember Foursquare, we were going to make a better Foursquare, and uh, and so we we built that and we failed very very quickly. Um, and then we tried to do some other things and we and we kind of failed at that. And, uh, and we were, we were bouncing around making apps for other people and, um, trying, trying to figure out, we knew we didn't want to go work for somebody. Um, we wanted to build something big and make a huge impact, but we didn't, didn't yet know exactly where we could take our technology. And, um, during that entire roller coaster ride, there was two things that, that happened. So one, um, my wife's uncle, Doc Venhouse, uh, he's a retired veterinarian, Aggie vet. And he just kept yelling at us, like, you got to bring this into, into the vet space. They, they need this technology. They need to communicate with their clients. And, you know, it's really far behind. And so th- this was like 2011, 2012, 2013. And um, 
you know, just kind of didn't listen to him for a while, even though he's one of the wisest, smartest people I know. And um, and then about about two years into this roller coaster ride, uh, I looked down and um, my wife's dog, who's now my dog, uh, Molly Sue, she was um, missing an eyebrow and her and her paws were all chewed up. And I realized that she had been keeping me sane for uh, the last two years. I was literally talking to her during the day while I was working and stuff. And we're not even building a pet app at this point yet, right? And um, and I was just being a horrible pet parent, not taking her in, not paying attention to her health. And it all kind of clicked like, hey, wait, we have technology. Doc, keep, Doc keeps yelling at us about this. And I have an actual need that I can solve. Um, and uh, from there, we, we looked into it and, and just dove right in. That's awesome. So one of the things you meant, there's a couple of things you mentioned there, a better Foursquare. And I am ashamed to admit this, but as a technology person, I really have no idea what Foursquare is. What the heck is Foursquare? Yeah, so Foursquare was the leading app during this app craze. Uh, this is like 20, 20, 2009, let's say, to like 2011, 2012. Um, there was all these check-in apps. So you would go to a place and on your phone, you would check in that you were there. Um, and, and then you got rewards the more you would go there and check in. Um, this really weird uh, kind of social media location-based um, brief history of <laughs> section of time. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our idea was, hey, let's make this more interactive. Like, if you're at a place, why do you just check in? Why don't you digitally connect with the people around you and digitally connect with the, the locations? Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, it was an interesting idea, but I think that that entire concept kind of, the world moved on from it. Um, Foursquare is still around. It's actually, I think it, it, it pivoted pretty hard into the, all the data behind uh, location-based uh, apps. Um, and so like, you know, it competes with Google Maps and some of those others. Uh, but we, we, you know, we still really wanted that like interaction piece with locations. Um, and that's why, when we started looking at vet, we realized, oh, there's a communication layer that we can do here for the local vet business and their clients. Um, and instead of making it a consumer app, we can make it a tool for the, the vet clinics. Um, and that unlocked a lot of different things for us. So one thing that you kind of mentioned a few times is that you really wanted to create this connection with the people that were in the, say, restaurants or wherever place that they were checking into with this other app. And then that kind of led to your thought process around what eventually would lead to pet test. So what was it for you guys that was important about the being able to connect with the people um, that are enjoying the same space, organization, or business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, I, I think one of, one of the things that we discovered as we were building because we built a bunch of different apps and um, is that like as software moved into this app-based um, type of world where it's in your, in your pocket, um, that software becomes much more personal to you, right? Like no longer are you just going to some business's website or um, downloading a piece of software to, to do something utilitarian. Like you have this like personal software, this personal attachment to your apps in a way that you don't with others. Um, and we and we felt like during the during this mobile revolution, as everything went to mobile phones, that was going to be like humans are still humans and they want to connect with each other, right? And if you looked back at the time and still now, you know the the fastest moving, largest apps were the ones that connected people together to communicate 
with themselves, right? Like whether that be WhatsApp messaging, right type of stuff or Facebook and all the others. Um, and, and so, you know, we had a really strong thesis that this was, okay, that this is going to happen on the business side of, of everything because there's still a lot of communication there. Um, and I think just personally, we, we really like that idea of, uh, you know, technology kind of creates a new problem um, in, you know, everybody, every time there's a new technology, people are worried like, oh, we're going to just sit at home and never talk to, to ourselves. And just kind of funny because now here we are doing that. But, um, uh, you know, it's going, it's going to hurt us as human beings and take away something that's personal about us. And we've always felt that technology may do that at first, but then the technology gets better, smarter, more personalized, um, and actually brings us even more connected um, as, as we go all the way around that circle, right? So it's the cause of the problem, but then it's also the solution of the problem and we end up in an even better place. And um, so that, that was a lot of the thinking around that. Interesting. So did you, I mean, so with, as you take that concept and that idea, what did you bring from that idea of this connectedness, leveraging technology to better connect us into the vet space? Yeah, so we, um, so the first thing we did once, once, you know, I, I called Ken at the time and I was like, I think we should look into this pet thing. And, um, and so we put together a survey and, and then we went to uh, WVC 2013. Um, I should say I went uh, and, and halfway through the first day of that show, I called Ken and was like, yeah, start building pet tests. This is a no brainer. Um, and it was clear that there were, there were these, you know, client communication platforms, but they were all um, single direction. Like, we're just going to push stuff at you to remind you to come in and, or, you know, try to sell you drugs or food or whatever on top of it. Um, and they had all been acquired up by the big companies. <clears throat> and it, it seemed like no one was paying attention to that relationship between vets and their clients. Um, and this was also what Doc was, was, um, talking to us about, uh, we sat down with him many times and, and talked through, you know, what are the big problem areas in, in practice for an owner? And, uh, you know, the, there, there's obviously the compliance problem of 50% of pets just aren't coming back in because they're not, they're somehow not being communicated to, whether it's just postcards or the messaging is missing or whatever it is. Um, but there's also, you know, he, he also explained how like, hey, look, we're we're medical professionals who are focused on this. We're not focused on these other things. Um, and, and we really need a partner to come in and, and just solve it through, through technology, right? Um, and so we looked at our platform. We're like, hey, we already have most of this built and figured out. And we know, we know how to get people to talk and engage on a mobile platform. And, um, and they engage way more. And so let's let's just do this. We, we're, we're solving the, you know, the, the problems that we're, that we're seeing already in the industry. And then the last thing I'd say there is that, that survey that we did, um, it became very clear that the number one pain point on both sides of the, the table was essentially appointment requests. So you had a growing population of pet owners who, you know, they're working during the day, <clears throat> they get home at night, that's when they remember to, you know, schedule an appointment or, or do something for their, for their dog or cat. But by then the, the, the office is closed. They don't leave voicemails anymore. Um, they also don't listen to voicemails and 
Um, so they wanted some better way to asynchronously uh, request an appointment, right? And 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 manage their pets their pets life. <clears throat> and uh, and the same on the practice side, they're like the phone's ringing off the hook. We just we wish there was a better way that we could work with these customers to get their appointments figured out. Um, but still stay present in the practice and do all the things we have to do. You know, they still have to like fax stuff and everything, right, for prescriptions. And, um, when that became super clear, uh, that's that's when we basically stripped down our our technology platform and and rebuilt it with just appointment requests as the center core functionality to start. So one thing that you mentioned is that you know is his name Doc or is you just calling him Doc? Isn't because he is a doctor. He, uh, yeah, so he, uh, he's amazing. Um, he had the nickname Doc since he was three because uh, I guess at three, he was like, I'm going to be a veterinarian and never change his mind. Um, and so they just called him Doc since then. Um, his actual name is uh, Leonard Venhouse, but oh. I don't think I've ever heard anybody use his first name. He just goes as Doc. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, but you're, you, so you said you were like talking with, with Doc and you were trying to better understand the relationship between vets and clients what was some of that like what were some of the like the gems that you kind of pulled out of that conversation to better to get a better understanding of what it's like to be on the other side you know to be the vet and trying to maintain a relationship with your client and vice versa yeah well you know i think i'd say doc started us off and then and then getting into the space and and seeing it everywhere started to really um crystallize this idea that that relationship is kind of broken um and you know there there seems to be this almost contentious relationship between veterinarians and their and their clients um to no fault of either of either side but just the way that's sort of been set up right the um the fact that we have human health insurance and that and that uh you know, shields a lot of the costs um, for us. And so when we go into a vet and you know, it's a it's a larger bill, we're super surprised, but that's because you're actually paying for everything that, you know, insurance and the rest of us aren't paying 95% of that bill. Um, and, 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 and so there, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we, what we saw were vets who, again, got in, got in it for pet health reasons, um, were focused on the pet's health, we're always doing CE, you know, figuring out what the, be the best tools are, um, trying to run a business, trying to hire people and manage people. And um, when it came down to then, okay, I also have to have to make sure that I'm deeply engaging with all of my clients, um, even though, you know, I'm in and out because I'm so busy and I only get, you know, five or 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and for a lot of them, this may not, this isn't necessarily why they got into it is to, you know, is to be caretakers for the humans. They they got into it to be caretakers for the for the pets, um, and then and then you have us clients who don't really understand how vet medicine works, and so you know we're either upset because it's too expensive, or we're upset because we feel like we're being upsold on tests that we don't believe that we need, but it is actually better for the for the pet, right? Um, uh, or um, Oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, no, but that's a, I mean, it's a great point. I was, what it made me think of is, you know, I, for those who have listened to the podcast, I know, like I went through this almost two year battle with one of our dogs that had cancer. And I always tell the story that it was like at the end, you know, at the end of Cash's life, 
I knew that it was like, okay, his kidney shut down just because of what we had been dealing with and everything that I learned through the process. And so when we went, um, it was on a weekend. So we had to go to like this little emergency clinic. When we walked in, a lot of times I think like for that veterinarian, it probably had to be a lot easier. Cause I just walked in and I was like, Hey, I think his kidneys are shutting down. Like, can we run the blood test just to verify? And I, so I think for them, for her, it probably made it a lot easier. Cause she was like, okay, let's try to sell them on a blood test and say, we should do this. I was pretty much coming in like, no, we should do this, you know, cause I'm pretty sure this is what's going on. And then at that point, once I saw the numbers, like I was like, you know, his BUN and creatinine levels were just, they weren't even readable. They were so high. And I was like, yeah, this is the end. So in some aspects, you you talk about this idea of like having to upsell clients. And I can really, I guess I can really understand because I know the, having worked in the industry for so long, I know the importance of those things. And so to try to put myself on the other side of it, ah, well, you know, do I want to spend the 350 bucks or whatever for the blood work and all that? Is there another way? And I don't know, it kind of gave me a unique perspective just to kind of Mm -hmm. think about it and, and how that um, client engagement goes. I mean, have you personally ever been in that before you got involved in the industry? I mean, it sounds, you know, you tell this story of your dog, like missing an eyebrow and her, her paws are all chewed up and you're like, you know, you kind of notice to yourself that, your dog was kind of keeping you sane. So a, I would love to kind of hear more about that. You know, how was it that you had this human animal bond that this dog was helping keep you sane as you were trying to find the right idea and the right, the right business and the right opportunity. But then also were you ever on the other side of it where you were questioning the charges that came through and now looking back at it, you have kind of like a clear understanding or a better picture of the industry. Yeah, I, I was never on the other side of it because for the longest time I didn't have a dog um, until I had dogs when I was a kid and then just didn't have, we couldn't have dogs for a long time. And it wasn't until I met um, my wife now, girlfriend then um, and Molly, but, but I did, but I had a lot of friends and I was definitely in, I definitely had the feeling like vets make a lot of money and they're kind of out to get you. Even though I didn't have a dog for like 30 years, just, (laughs) It's, it, you know, it, I was just in that mindset because I was around enough people who had made those, you know, I think we're formed by society, right? And like mm-hmm. how they're portrayed on TV, how they're portrayed in conversations. Um, and all you have to do is go read like four or five different vets Yelp pages. And if you didn't know any better, if you're brand new to, to, to pet care, you're going to come away feeling like, man, these vets are just out to get you for money. And they don't take care of your dog as well. And they're going to kill that, you know, like all, all of this pretty, pretty bad stuff. Um, and so interestingly, even not having been a pet owner for so long, that was still a bias that, that um, ended up getting removed from, from my psyche of, you know, being in the, in the space. Um, with Molly specifically, um, the bias didn't come into play mainly because, you know, I have a pretty special relationship with Molly and, um, you know, I'll say she, I met my wife, I was 30 and, um, we actually met at my 30th birthday party and, uh, I met Molly on our, I think our very first date, um, when I went to, to pick Kat up and, uh, Molly jumped in my lap and like, it was done. I, <laughs> at that point. You were the super like, commercial. Yeah. Like this is like, all right, I guess we're getting married now because um, we have to. <laughs> 
And, um, but, you know, during that time, uh, you know, Molly, as Molly became more and more an integral part of my life and my wife did, you know, I think they, they, they both had a, um, what's the word? Um, a grounding, uh, like they helped ground me. Right. And, and Molly, especially because now I had something that I had to take care of and I'd spent, you know, all of my twenties working and going out and doing whatever and didn't have to take care of any, any other living thing. And to then have this thing that I had to take care of that, um, that I felt so connected with, um, uh, I don't, it really, it really just changed my entire perspective on, on life. And, um, and then, and then my wife was, uh, you know, girlfriend at the time was, was really helping me in, in those areas as, as, as well. And, um, and so from then on, you know, it, I, I tell this story a lot. Um, but when I think it was when we got married, um, I, I took Molly in and got papers to officially adopt her. And they were <laughs> like, awesome. you know, she's property and you're married. And, and so you, you, you already own her, you know? And I was like, you need to shut your mouth and you need to give me those papers because <laughs> um, I'm officially adopting her. And I signed papers and took her out on a little like, Hey, I'm your dad now, you know, uh, date and everything. And, um, and, and so like, she's been, uh, obviously like a really big part of my life, uh, for all of that. Um, but during the, during the, the early startup years, I mean, so I'm, my two co-founders were still in Dallas and I moved to San Diego. And so my wife and I and Molly were out here all by ourselves. So I'd work 16 hour days, um, you know, just trying to figure out what we're going to, going to do. And, and, um, it gets very isolating, right. Especially when you're failing. And, and so, Molly was, you know, sitting right next to my desk and I'd, uh, ask her questions and, you know, Hey, what do you think about this product feature or this market? Like, should we think about that? Or, um, and she obviously didn't give me any answers, but, uh, she, she gave me an outlet. Right. And, um, and then there was, we lived by Balboa park here in San Diego and, you know, we just go sit at the park for an hour or two and I could, I could like relax and get outside of the stress of having no money and, um, you know, my wife completely supporting, supporting us and, uh, uh, trying to make this thing happen and, and just kind of get away from it and like get in this Zen state with her and, you know, think about the future and think about what we should be doing. And that's, that's why when I, that's why it really hit hard. Um, when I, I noticed that she wasn't doing well health wise, I was like, man, I gotta, I'm, I'm being a, a pretty terrible person just taking and not, and not giving. Right. So. We got to dig a little bit more into this adoption story. So like, how did the, did your wife know you were doing that? Uh, I mean, was this kind of a surprise for the wedding? Um, yeah. How did, what, like what even sparked the idea for that? Uh, she, she knew, um, she knew that I, that I was doing it and uh, um, what it, it, it it wasn't really like a, like around the wedding type of thing. It was, um, you know, I, I, I grew up without, without a dad and, um, had a, an amazing mom and, um, uh, you know, she was always both parents for me. I never was really wanting for a dad, but, but still growing up like that, you always think about like, 
uh, like I had stepdads, but we, we, we never went through the thing where it's like, okay, now I'm like your real dad and like, we're going to sign papers. And, and so, but you think about that sort of experience. Um, so I think I just like had that in the back of my head and because I'm just so crazy, uh, about, <laughs> about Molly, it like popped into my head one day and I was like, you know what? Hey, let's, let's go do this. Let's make this official. Um, cause I didn't realize at the time. I didn't understand yet that animals are just property. Oh yeah. And, like the real legal implications of all of that, right? Which yep. I think should be interesting to see what happens in the next five to 10 years in that realm. Yeah, I mean, do you, I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, as somebody with a legal background, it, it is a very it is a very interesting question because you can't have like, on one hand, you can't have a dog make a legal decision right there's a lot of amb ambiguities there um yeah. unlike a child where even at a young age you can kind of talk to and that even gets a little gray and iffy right because it's like you can talk to a child but at a certain age you can kind of there are ways to maybe manipulate what they say or influence them and to get them to say certain things so um yeah, I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you said that you, you thought it would be interesting to see what happens in five years. So it sounds like this is kind of something you've thought about. Um, I don't know, do you have an opinion on the matter? Yeah, I. so I, I wouldn't say that I have a strong um, political or legal opinion because um, I, just, I just don't know enough about how all of that would work, um, right? And like how you need to treat malpractice and the implications to, to vets in the industry if there was malpractice and um uh and and all of the other other things that 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 go into it um but i i do think that it's wrong that they're that pets are treated just as property yes chattel is the, is the proper legal term yeah and <laughs> and that which is kind of which is also a great. weird word <laughs> yeah. yeah um and and that you know somebody somebody through gross negligence could essentially take away what a lot of people see as their, as, as a member of their family. And, um, and you know, you get two or $500 back in, in restitution. Right. Like, yeah. That, that doesn't, it, it makes sense 20, 30 years ago, but I think where we're headed now, it, it, it kind of stops making sense. Um, giving them full personhood yeah, starts getting tough, right? Like there's some like, you know, legal guardianship over this being, um, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, but I don't, I think, I think something's going to have to change in the next five to 10 years to address how we, how we treat them. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, I mean, if we even look at like the Merck animal study that came out a number of years ago, and we just look at the new pet parent and the money that's being spent on, uh, I don't even know what the right word was, but it would be like just like accessories for animals, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I have small, well, I have only one now, but you know, like I could take a tray to the, to PetSmart and I could buy them like a whole year's worth of outfits and all this stuff. And we have seen this massive shift from, you know, like when I grew up and I grew up in Cole Creek Canyon and it was like, your dog was sick, you grabbed the gun out of the closet and you took them out in the woods and you put them out of their misery and you buried them in the mountains, right? Like that was just, right. that was a thought process. And now yet you're right. It's this whole other ball game and this whole other, yeah. 
it's a very complicated question and we're definitely not going to come to any sort of uh, yeah. answers there. I just thought it was kind of an interesting topic and, and something to kind of dig into. Um, yeah. Another. So wait a second. I need to understand. So yeah. is your dog named Atreyu? Yes. From yeah. Neverending Story? Yes, that's correct. That's yes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, we did have Atreyu and Sebastian. So we had gotten two Yorkies from the same breeder and Sebastian was born with a bad heart. Uh, he was born with pulmonary hypertension. And so we lost, we actually lost him on Christmas day. It was kind of a, mm. kind of a crappy uh, Christmas present, but yeah. so then we waited, I think it was like another year and then we ended up getting cash from the same breeder. But we ended up naming cash cash because uh, yeah, he, you know, as Yorkies are, as they're in their puppies, you can see like the silver kind of coming through, like as the black is growing out, but we could right. tell that cash was going to stay black and tan. So we just named him uh, Cash after Johnny Cash because he was going to wear all black. So nice. Yeah. <laughs> so Atreyu, Atreyu is the main character, right? Not the dragon dog thing. Correct. That's Falcor. Yeah. So Falcor. Atreyu is like yeah. the he's like the like the native like person to whatever whatever Fantasia, you know. Fantasia. And then the, right. yeah, and then Sebastian was the the boy reading the book. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. But yeah, he's he's got multiple nicknames, Atreyu and then Napoleon, because he's like five pounds of pure terrier, you know. <laughs> even at, even at fifteen, he's still wild. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, one thing I would love to hear you, you know, you talked about your time at WBC, and you know, you were kind of getting feelers out that to see if you know your product would kind of get adoption within the industry. And you made the statement that you know you called your partners and you're like, yo, we got to do this because it seems like it's it's really going to hit home. One thing that when I first got into the industry that I was kind of told is like, oh, you know, it's going to take you three years to break in. Like, you know, vets are leery of any new people in the industry. And um, what's interesting from my perspective is that, you know, once I crossed that three-year mark, it seemed like, you know, like now I feel like I can't say enough to the amount of support and the people in the industry as a whole that have believed in me and just kind of really feeling like a, a part of a community. So did you notice any sort of pushback from being new to the industry and kind of a distrust or maybe what I was told and was maybe a little misleading? Um, no, I mean, I think, I think a lot has changed for one in the last seven years um, in the industry. I, I think that uh, just like everywhere, you know, with the acceleration of technology where once, once a little bit of technology gets going, right, it goes faster and faster, um, that mm-hmm. sort of singularity concept. Um, you know, I, I think that that's happened in the, in, in the vet industry. And so, you know, when we were first getting in, everybody said, oh, you know, it's like 20 years behind and it's always going to be 20 years behind. Mm-hmm. But, but what we found is like, no, like once it started going, like now it's, still behind, but now it's maybe only five years behind or 10 years behind instead of 20 years behind. Um, and, and that rate of change is just going to continue to increase until, uh, you know, mo- most everybody in the, in the vet space is, is going to be kind of at the same technology level as like dentists and human health and, and whatnot. Like we're seeing that with telemedicine right now. Right. Um, and, and so I think early on, especially on the tech side of things, it was, that there was still a lot of hesitation to newness, right? Um, and so w- whether that's like new technology or like, oh, you're just these new young people coming in trying to talk about this stuff, like 
we have our own circles and 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 we're all good. Um, you know, I think we we definitely experienced that in in the beginning. Um, uh, but I've I've noticed um, that that just changing across across the industry, and I think that has to do with a lot of the changing demographics in the in the industry um, of of vets and and vet owners and um, and uh, and what we've seen in the last I don't know let's say four years is kind of this explosion of startups and entrepreneurs and and um, and entrepreneurial vets right who are like coming out of school already with a business um, you know you've got like Lacuna Diagnostics right You're like building the business while they're in school and um, uh, and and all of these other examples and so um, I. I guess if I was talking to somebody now, I'd still say like, "Hey, it's 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 still going to be a little bit tough to break into the industry because it it still is small and super connected." And so, if you're trying to do something, somebody else probably is already trying to do it within the industry, right, and has better connections than you. Um, but I I I wouldn't warn them against what what maybe we had to go through, right, four, five, six, seven years ago. You mentioned you kind of have seen this change in like the ownership demographics so have you noticed personally with you know a certain type of practice or an owner that's really open to the adoption of new technology and i think again to reference back to that market animal study which is one of the real i think you really opened my my eyes to the overall client base and what the new new customers like and i think one of the things was, is, you know, you were talking about appointment reminders and appointment requests. And it's now that the younger generation is the majority pet owner by like, I think it's like 55% or something. They, you know, that is one thing that they want. But I've also heard a lot of, you know, like there's, like I can think of certain vets and practices that I've worked with where it's like, that doctor is just not going to, they're like, nope, I want to be able to control my schedule. I don't want them just automatically booking it. You know what I mean? But it's like the industry is changing. So what is the modern vet look like that really is adopting that the new technology and open to some of these ideas? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a couple of things. Um, the first major shift that we saw um, and, and it felt like it was maybe a lot of the veterinarians who uh, didn't get out during 2008, 9, 10, like didn't retire and, and you know, couldn't retire basically. And so they, they sort of like hung on. Um, and, uh, but then they've been selling their practices, right. You know, in 2014, 15, 16. Um, but uh, even, even the ones who, who maybe weren't ready to, to retire, but had been in practice for, for a long time and um, had always, has had always kind of controlled everything within the practice. Um, we saw a huge shift, I'd say between probably 2015, uh, not, uh, let me say, like 2014 to 2016, and then the shift has, has continued to, to, to grow um, and in the, the release of power to the practice manager. I think more and more of the, the, the vets who have been in practice for, for a long time I don't know exactly when we went into their decision making. If they were just like, you know what, I'm just, I just can't do this anymore, so I'm going to let a practice manager take over, or you know, they saw they saw the other the other vets around them that had 
young practice managers who are doing new, interesting, cool, fun things. And, and they saw those practices increase in size and revenue, right? Well, well they weren't. Um, but I think that has been huge uh, because it, one, it puts somebody in, it, it, put, it's a, it allows somebody to start making more of these decisions based on the clients and based on like the running of the practice um, and, and, and not through the lens of somebody who's super focused on the medical side of things and then is just squeezing in these small little bits to think about, you know, how do I do marketing? How do I do retention? You know, how do I mess with this whole digital new thing? Um, uh, so I, I think that has been a, a massive change uh, and we're seeing it more and more. Um, and, and, and then we're now seeing, I think everybody, this is probably not news to anyone, but um, you know, with COVID, and all of this happening and everyone expecting a, a downturn. This is actually one interesting thing. I, you know, as, as we went into this, I, I went back and looked at as much data as I could get from 2008. And we had talked to a bunch of veterinarians about what happened back then. But if you look at it, the vet industry didn't, didn't really get impacted by the 2008, the Great Recession, until about 18 months after the fact. Uh, so in that first year, they were they were st they still grew by like one percent, but then in that second year, um, the the entire the entire vet industry shrunk by about three percent, um, and then and then that third year quickly recovered and they were back up to one percent growth year over year, uh, which if you look at other industries like that's pretty recession proof. It's that, that that's pretty awesome, but um, you know if you think about this time around, it's obviously going to be different than than, than last time. It already is. Who knows what's going on in the market? It's very weird right now, um, but there's most likely going to be some some impact, and we're seeing a lot of the vets who were like, "Hey, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to stick it out for one one more year or two more years." Um, now they're all like, "You know what? All right, I had a good run. Feels like the bottom's about to to drop out. Like I need to go sell my practice." Um, and you know, I think part of that's economy, but also part of it is they see this changing demographic that they need to cater to. They don't necessarily care or want to, to do that. And it's like, all right, like, let me, I'm going to get out. I'll sell to one of these corporates and they'll put in all these solutions that, that take care of the customer. So um, I, I think that's going to be another big, uh, there's going to be another big rate of change over the next two years because of that. You know, you, you made a great statement. You said the, you know, release of power to the practice manager and and then as I heard you kind of talk about this idea, you know, especially towards the end, then you said, you know, like these these practice owners that now with the state of COVID that are practices, if they don't want to, if they want to thrive and they don't want to just barely survive, they have to adopt a lot of these new new technology offerings and, and things to allow them to better service curbside and through telehealth and all these different different ways to kind of change with the market. But I it made me think I just interviewed a practice manager, Maria, and she, I thought she would be a, you know, I've really tried, for lack of a better term, I tried to avoid COVID conversations like the plague, you know, because I feel like there's been so many conversations about COVID and yeah. A, I didn't want to get lost in the ether and B, I also wanted to be a place that people could kind of escape from the news that is COVID. But mm -hmm. I feel that there have been a, a couple of things that have come out of it. And one of them was this idea of the release of power to the practice manager. And so at Marina's practice, 
she has a really great relationship with the owner, Ed. And Ed is also a super fantastic guy, um, really amazing doctor. And But what I think is great there is that he realizes that he wants to focus on medicine and he wants to be the practice owner. And he's got this practice manager that is really excited about marketing and embracing new technology and how do we move this stuff forward. And he has released that control to her, right? And Mm -hmm. as part of that, during the downturn of COVID, they still had some of their highest months ever in the midst of a, a great you know, economic contraction, although somewhat of a false economic contraction, right? Because it's like the government just ran their car through our front, you know, our front porch. It wasn't like, you know, we had done, you know, the economy had done something wrong. It was kind of forcefully put under under constraints. But what is also interesting is they were also embracing how do we have more of our our employees working from home and looking at different remote options and really embracing that that rate of change and um yeah so i think it was a really great point on a number of different things that you talked there about just releasing power to the practice manager as you think about that have you seen any other positives that have come out of a practice owner again kind of relinquishing some of that control over to the practice manager yeah you know i i think um the other the other big positive that comes out of that is is stress levels at the practice um right because i uh you know being a ceo myself and sort of the 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 top of the of the pyramid um you know if i controlled everything in the company and um anytime you know somebody makes a mistake or um somebody needs to figure something out right like they have to go through me uh it can create there's this there's this large gap of this is a hierarchical gap right um and 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 that can create a lot more stress um and and so when you're a front desk person and you're working all day long and and you know you you maybe have a practice manager but you also but you know like they don't really have power and it's really the owner and and so the so you kind of have two bosses and you know um one seems much scarier to you than than the other just because they own the practice um, and, and, and you put that across all of the employees, uh, in, in an already, like, I mean, we've all been in practices, like it is, these people are amazing that they work as hard as they do and put up with all of the stuff that's going on inside that practice. Um, so you, so you layer this on top of that and it makes for a very, very dangerous, um, stress-filled atmosphere. And, but if you relinquish that control to your practice manager, or in my case, to like you know my VPs and directors and 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 whatever, and um, it closes that gap, that hierarchical gap, and it and changes the power dynamic and and allows people, I think, to to breathe a little bit more, right, and work more closely. Um, in in this case, like with their with their practice manager, and um, you know they they shield the the owner a little bit as as well, um, which. I actually didn't think about it until just talking through this right now is it probably takes stress off of the owner too um, because it shields them from some of the minutia that's happening that they they probably don't need to know about right but it's just going to like work them up on an already stressful day so you you said something interesting there if if i controlled everything and what's fascinating about this this podcast is it seems like it always comes back to the people element of things so how have you like how have you approached 
leading and relinquishing power within your own organization? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, definitely something that I've had to work on over the years, um, and and you know intentionally do um, because otherwise I, I do like you know control and stuff and 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 it's fun in the beginning because you do everything right and you wear all the hats and so then this last year was I, I learned a lot in bringing in VPs and and relinquish, relinquishing control to them. Um, you know some of the things I did over the year, one, I had two kids during it um, and, and took, you know, the two weeks or a month and just just focused on my new baby. And uh, um, that kind of forces, kind of forces it because then everybody else takes over stuff and you come back and you're like, oh, wow, y'all did even better than when I was here. Um, <laughs> and now 80% of what I did, I don't have to do anymore. Okay, I can, let me go do these other things. And, and then that's how you actually, you know, grow the company and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, but I think, you know, another, a, a big, a big lesson I learned is, uh, I, we have a core group who were early employees, helped build the company. They were awesome independent, um, individual contributors and they moved to managers, then directors and, um, and, and, and most likely prom I promoted them too fast in, into directors and we scaled too much with them, right. Without without the support, they basically just had me only as a mentor and I was stretched too thin. And, and, um, and what we learned, there's a lot of problems in there, but in, in this case, what we learned was, you know, I was still kind of in every single decision with them. And it was fun because we're all together, we're all friends, we're building this company, right? And like, so we're always talking about every single decision. Um, but the problem there is then they don't actually learn and you know how to really make the decisions right or or have the confidence to go to go do this and 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 run something and um so i kind of stunted their growth by, by by doing that and then i created this really bad environment for vps to come in because then you know vps come in and they've done this multiple times and like well this is how i'm going to do it and i make the decisions right and we yeah we sort of talk about it but like you know this is this is my area of the business that i'm going to work on um and that was such a a um oh, what's the word uh it was just such a it was a such a 180 for me that um basically the way i solved it was i just really stepped back and was like i'm just gonna let these vps go because if i at all get into this then it's it, i'm gonna get too sucked in and i'm gonna make the same the same problems and um, i actually probably stepped back too much and i and now so now i'm trying to find that 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 good middle ground but um I think the most important through all of this, like, I don't think I said anything super valuable there to help somebody going through this, but the, the most important thing is just the self-awareness. Like, you know that you're probably doing this. Um, and, and then you can look at it and think about it and talk with your VPs or talk with your directors, right? And, and kind of figure this out. So like, were the, the VPs that you brought in, or did they from like an org chart, were they above the people that you had kind of promoted to these director roles or did they kind of come underneath them? Uh, yeah, no, they, they were above um, in some places kind of replacing them. Um, and, and to the credit of, of these early employees, uh, they, they're all still with the company and they, they had to go through their own sort of founder struggle, right? Like the, they had to give up their baby a little bit and, and they all did that in amazing ways and they all, um, 
we're, we're, we're super cool with like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe we did get a little bit too high in the titles and, and this kind of stuff, but like, we still have tremendous value for the company. And so we want to go do this or that. And, um, uh, they, they showed like, I think real, real maturity and, and, and lack of ego, which, uh, I think you, even, even people in late in their careers, um, uh, would wouldn't have the same the same response so i'm super i'm super thankful for that for that team yeah like being you know being the owner was it how did you approach those as the term can be said a lot you know crucial conversations with some of those people that had kind of been there since the beginning and now it seems like you're kind of pushing them a step back right so they went through this like massive growth and now it kind of seems like they're going back what was that like for you? Was it hard to kind of struggle and how to, to broach those conversations? Yeah. I mean, I definitely struggled with it cause I did not want to lose any of them. Right. And, and I also, we had, we had created, you know, this like friend group and, and I, I was very invested in their careers and in their future. Right. And so I wanted to continue to help with that, um, especially to show my gratefulness for having built you know, our, our company to, to where, to where it was. And, um, so, so I, w- I went in like very nervous and, and, and everything, but I think the, the, the good, the good thing is that we, we already had a very open, um, dialogue always. Uh, like, so we're really big on, we are just, some questions came up yesterday in the all hands about, about performance reviews. Cause we don't do annual performance reviews because we've, we really focus on like, look, you should, you should know it every, every day, like where you stand. Right. And um, so we have weekly one-on-ones, we have these in- individual development plans. Um, there should never be a question in your mind. And so when we raised the money and we decided, yes, we're bringing in VPs, they already knew half of, half of this story, like the, half of that discussion had already been had because we'd been ha- having it before that. Uh, you know, um, and, and so it wasn't, it wasn't like it was three, four years of building. And then all of a sudden I had to have this one conversation, um, you know, e- even two months after I promoted them to director, let's say like, and we started to see like, well, maybe this was a little much or this doesn't work or th- that doesn't work. Like we were talking about it. Um, and so I think, I think having that constant communication made that crucial conversation much easier. Yeah, one thing that I would, you know, you mentioned you should always know it, you know, and I, at a previous organization, one thing that I struggled from kind of being in, you know, almost like a director or VP role, whatever you want to call it, was that the, I felt that from the top, you know, from, from an ownership perspective, we didn't, we had this expectation of what we thought they should know. But then when I would actually have conversations with the individuals, it was a different story, right? And then even myself, like there was, there was keys and there was measurements and we were saying one thing, but the things we were measuring didn't back up against what we were saying, right? So there was this like kind of conflict of interest, you know, like conflict of message as to what we were measuring and, and what we were saying. So how is it that with your staff, you kind of made sure that they knew what was expected, you know, I think in the book, five minute manager, they talk about having 
you know, simple KPIs that you can almost like just write on a chalkboard that keeps everybody focused. Was it something like that, you know, that you had that was just kind of a simple defined metric or how did you approach it, making sure that everybody knew what their roles were and what they were trying to accomplish? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it for us is as simple as having direct conversations and, um, and not skirting around, you know, the, the, those tougher conversations. And so the, you know, the second that I noticed that somebody was a great manager, but now when they're managing managers, right, after only three months of being a manager, that that's starting to break down, um, you know, we're immediately talking about it and, and, and talking about it from a place of like, Hey, you're going to manage managers. And so we need to figure this out. Like, how, how do we, how do we go figure this out? What books can we read? And, and, you know, yada, yada. Um, I think, I think that that's, that's what I meant by like, they always, they always knew. And, and we try to do this as much as possible. I mean, I think it gets harder and harder as you scale, but um, we want everyone to always know where they're at um, at the company in terms of their own performance, right? Like where are their gaps? What are they working on? And then what are they doing, doing great at? Um, and it, we, we have KPIs and all that kind of stuff for, Hey, this is where the company's going. And then this is our vision and our mission. And, and this is how we're, this is how we're hitting the results. Um, but I, that, that I think is like the easy part. The harder part is, okay, now me personally, I have, this thing that I want to, you know, five years from now, this is my future career. This is where I want to get. Do I know, do I see a path there? Do I know what I need to be working on? Um, you know, I say, um, all the time when I'm talking, but I want to go do some role. that's going to be you know, speaking and doing podcasts all the time. Uh, has anybody told me that I say, um, all the time and am I working on that or not? Right. So. We have one thing that you, you know, you also mentioned that, with some of these early employees, you were very vested in their career. So how is it that you can, and I guess from a personal, and I'm asking from a, a personal standpoint is one of the reasons that I wanted to build Luca is I've always had this dream of uh, creating a workplace where people weren't just a number, right? Mm. The people that didn't have the drive to build something or take that risk or to think laterally and find the idea that's going to solve a problem in the market but wanted to know that they could come to work, work really hard every day and know that they're not just a number on a, you know, on a P and L. And it seems like talking to you, you kind of had a similar approach. You know, you said you were very vested in their careers. How did you, how did you walk that line? Like how did you make sure that you were helping somebody in their career development while also helping the company achieve the goals that, you know, the company needs to reach? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, part of it is alignment, right? So being really clear on hiring and what you need in a role. And so, you know, early on, especially. So we made, we made a bunch of mistakes early on hiring for sales people. Um, so a lot of the sales people that didn't work out, literally in the hiring process told us that they didn't want to do sales. Right, that they that that they'll do sales now, but they want to move into marketing or they want to do this thing or that thing later on in the career. Right, and 
And we at the time were like, oh, okay, well, we're going to be growing. So there's going to be opportunity, but now we'll get them and, you know, they'll do sales for us for a year or two. Um, never, never worked out because their career alignment wasn't, wasn't with the company's alignment. Right. And we were never going to have, you know, 10 marketing positions, especially, you know, back at that time. And, um, and it became clear quickly. And then, and, 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 and so the people who were like, I want to go do sales, I want to move from SDR to account executive. And, and then I want to be the best I could possibly be in here. And then I'm going to move to enterprise and I'm going to go be some, you know, super strategic enterprise one makes a million dollars a year, whatever. Like that's their, if that's their, their route, um, that's super aligned then with what, what we also need at, at the company. Um, so I think that's key, especially early on. As you get larger, you can start to relax that a little bit because now you are going to have more positions, right? And you can be a little bit more flexible, but um, that's super key. I think I, I didn't I didn't do this intentionally, but looking back now, like we basically we couldn't pay a lot of money, so we could only hire people who was basically straight out of school, right, or very early in their careers, and. Um, and that was an advantage uh, for us because they didn't come with any baggage from having been at a bunch of different companies and like, this is how it's done. Or, um, you know, they, they were super open to like having completely direct conversations and uh, doing a whole bunch of different things and, uh, and, and creating a, a, a different type of culture like we like we've built it at, at pet desk um and then third which for us it's all uh this isn't going to help us but there anybody that's listening to this that's not in the vet space is like get in the vet space because <laughs> i think having having customers in an industry that is as special like the people that you're calling every single day right and talking with and working for and um how amazing that is rolls back into the can, you you can take that and roll it back into the company culture and help really build um a, a more special place uh you know versus let's say other other sales positions let's say where you're just getting yelled at all day long because you're selling <laughs> products like yeah yeah or uh, yeah or you know i have or I've always heard the nightmare stories of, you know, supporting attorneys for some reason. It's it's just another one yeah. of those, <laughs> another one exactly. of those industries. Exactly. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say that because I don't want to get sued, right? But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, the other thing that you mentioned there was the idea of culture. Have you been intentional about the culture you want to build, or have have you been a little bit more organic in that approach? Insanely intentional. Um, so. And, and part of the reason is that my co-founders and I, um, especially Ken and I, Aaron, Aaron is a little bit, has a, has a, a little bit more of the natural, like culture leader type, type of thing. But, but Ken and I are very much uh, like, we don't say good job to people, right? Like we, we don't want it. And so then we don't do it for others. Right? It's the whole like love language type of thing. And, and, um, but, but we knew that we wanted to create a very, awesome culture and um and then my, my wife is um she actually has her own company and and strategic and uh, hr and um and and so i always had her in my ear as well helping me through through all of this uh so you know from from almost day one we 
we were thinking about like, okay, what are our values? Um, how, how do we want to set up the way that we talk to each other? Um, how do we want to hire people? Um, we, we had, uh, I, we don't do it anymore, but I had very specific hiring questions that, that got to the core of like, are these people curious? Like, can they, can they think, can they be vulnerable? Um, uh, so yeah, super intentional in every aspect uh, because the, I mean, there's tons of research that shows that once, I don't remember where it is, but like once you get over 30 people or 40 or 50 people or something like that, changing your culture is incredibly difficult. Um, and your culture really is, like in the beginning, you can kind of say, this is what I want it to be, but it does really, it, it is really this like meta thing that comes out of all of the people that you have in the company. And, and so you can help steer it there um, but you know, like now, even if I said that I wanted a culture to be this, our culture, culture to be this way or that way, I couldn't do it. It's so we just redid all of our values last year and the process was much more, okay, what does everybody think our culture is? And like, what are our values that we're actually doing? Um, uh, and so it, it, it becomes much more of an organic thing that you then kind of like trim and steer. Uh, and so it's really important that like day one, you're, you're focused down that, that path. Um, that's at least as closely aligned to where you want to end up. Right. So did you initially, did you build your values with the core team that you had, or did you start with something, a subset of values that you had kind of developed personally and then rolled with that. And then now it sounds like you mentioned that you are working with your staff now to kind of reassess your values, how, you know, however frequently. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the first, like the first handbook that I wrote, I just wrote it and then, um, and then sent it to, to Ken and Aaron and was like, what, what, what do you, what do y'all think about these being our values? And, um, and then we went back and forth and, you know, I think we had like five or six employees total at that time or something. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so I think like that, that early on, like you as a founding team, or if you're a single founder, like you just need to figure out what your values are and, and, and put them down. Um, you know, whether you write a handbook or value statement or however you want to, you want to do it. Um, and, and then you go hire for alignment to those, to those values. And then you, and then, and you put the systems and processes in place, right? So if you're going to have values that say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to directly address things right away. And we're going to communicate. Um, and you can't just say that you also, you have to force everyone to do one-on-ones, right? You can't have a manager that doesn't do one-on-ones. And, um, you know, like if we find out that a manager isn't doing one-on-ones, like they're fired the next day, it's done. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, you start to build up that inertia and then, and then it starts to take a little bit of, of, uh, it, it, it starts to veer off of that course that you set it on, but at least it's that course and not the complete opposite direction. And you're 50 people in and you're like, wait a second, no, I want to be like that company over there and trying to like do a 180 with, with 50 people is just, it's just not going to work. Yeah, and, and now as you guys are approaching, I mean, I'm not sure if you're still growing during this time of COVID, but 
when you initially were building the company, company, did you kind of embrace the decentralized office model or were you more focused on having people together? We were much more focused on having people together. Um, you know, I think that that came that that came more just from my you know like personal style and like i like like being in a room together with a whiteboard and, and doing that kind of stuff right um both my co-founders were still in dallas and i was here in san diego and we built everybody was here in san diego um so we still had a little bit of decentralization because of them um but yeah now now with covid like we're all working from home and and coming out of this it's definitely going to be a different company than it was going in. Um, so we're going to figure out what we're going to do with all the office space that we have. Uh, um, but uh, hopefully just continue to be very successful and, and uh, employ more people. And we'll just, we'll have a, a mixed work from home, work, work from the office type of, type of approach. Do you think as an organization, like, only focusing on people that were in the San Diego area, you were potentially limiting your talent pool for the like the people that could kind of come and grow the organization that you wanted to, or was it more important to you that that really wasn't an issue? It was more just making sure you had found the right person locally to be a part of the organization. Definitely limited limited the talent pool, and 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 for a while there got got tough because there was a bunch of startups here who were all hiring salespeople and. So it was very competitive, try to get good SDRs and AEs and, and then there just wasn't that many here. Um, so, you know, being able to, to go grab people from the Midwest and from like Utah and some of these other areas where there's really good remote salespeople um, would, would have been nice. Uh, you know, I think for us, so if I had to do it over again, or if I was doing it right now, um, you know, I would, it's, there's advantages and disadvantages to both. The hardest thing to do though, is to do a mixed, and this is what we're kind of worried about, is like you have half the people in the office and then half remote, that gets real tough. And so if I was thinking about it now, I would, I would, I would go on the remote side just because there's no way that, there, some companies are gonna do this, but I know for us, there's no way that we can say like, all right, everybody's forced to come back into the office. Like we've proven that we can be super successful working from home. And so we're now gonna have to do some kind of mixed setup. Um, but it would be much better if it was just a complete remote setup. Um, there'd be downsides, but you can manage around that, right? And especially if you're building initially, then you can, you can look at a lot of these companies um, that have done it and they've laid out like, hey, here's the template and playbook to, to build a remote organization. Um, and it, it certainly frees you up and also saves a lot of money in office space too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think that's one of the, I think that's one industry that's going to be hit really hard with the whole COVID thing is the, mm. yeah, business lease office leasing industry. Yeah. Uh, Cause there's even, you know, like my little company, my wife works for kind of very more old school owners. And it was, you know, nobody's going to work from home. We need everybody at the office, even though their primary offices, you know, across a few thousand miles away and there's only like four people that were working here in their Denver office because they essentially bought the company that was here in Denver and uh it's like but you know those people are essentially working remote anyways you know for so me from a technology standpoint I was like you guys are all essentially working remotely now anyways I don't understand why it matters that you're warming this other building you know um yeah. but even now with the whole COVID thing they are now 
assessing that, like they're getting rid of their office here in Denver and you know, the, the five or six people that work for their Denver office here are just going to go full-time remote. And so, yeah, it's definitely going to be a big, big change coming out of this. It is. Well, believe it or not, we have gone slightly over the hour. So yeah. this is your time to, uh, yeah, this is where we kind of land the ship and, you know, you know, your this is your moment to kind of give your, your elevator pitch for pet desk where people can find out more about you and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty easy. Just go to petdesk.com. Um, uh, we'll be coming out with some new desks for pets very soon. No, I'm just kidding. There. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think our, we've got a lot of different elevator pitches, um, but you know, our, our customer success team is a, is a, a group of really special people who absolutely adore um, animal practices and all the people that work that work there and um, you know we obviously have all this technology and and connect you with your clients and make you more money and, and do all that kind of stuff but um, I think you'd be hard to find better partners uh, to, to work with um, from our implementation team that gets you started to the customer success team that that checks in on you proactively and is making sure you know that that you are hitting goals and and making more money and using the tools and all that kind of stuff and then our our customer support team who's there with um i won't promise this but i'll i'll give a little a little shout out to them they're at a 48 second response time to to chat right now um wow. and so you know if you're sitting in a practice and like things are breaking or you're freaking out or you need to know whatever like we the, the, our team is 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 right there and um yeah that's if you're thinking about any of this kind of stuff, like you should definitely check us out and hop on a demo and you can, you can even talk with one of our, one of our CSMs. Awesome. And so for people that don't know what pet desk is, what is pet desk? Yeah. So it's a, it, it's marketing automation or client communication system, right? So we send email, text, um, all the health service reminders. Uh, we send postcards still cause they, they do still work. Um, there's still 20, 25% of your client base that, We'll use those postcards and, and, and come back. Um, and, and then we can do your website. We have loyalty programs, two-way messaging. Um, we just rolled out telemedicine for, for COVID and we help you with curbside care and, and, and all of that. And um, the, big, the big differentiator though is the, is the app. So we've got nearly 2 million app users now. Um, they download the app, they engage with their pet's health, they manage their pet's health there. And then you have your own branded experience inside of the app. Um, and, and they can request appointments with you through the loyalty program, stay connected. Um, and that deep engagement really drives a deeper engagement with their pet's health and then deeper engagement with you as, as, uh, the, the, the pet's caretaker, um, which is, which is why our reminder system works way better than, than, than the rest. And, and, uh, you get better Google reviews and, and, and all of the other things. Awesome. Well, I can say from personal experiences, I was like, working to get this whole thing off the ground you guys were even willing to sit down with me and, and entertain entertain me and all that i'm trying to do and yeah so i can't speak enough for you guys and, and the pet desk team and just you know the value you guys bring to the community thank you no i appreciate it we love well, we love you. being here we love being in this industry so and i'm excited to see to see where you go well thank you yeah yeah well thank you taylor this was really awesome i really appreciate you uh taking time out of your busy day especially a little over an hour. I know, I know it can be tough, but I really enjoyed our time together. No, I did too. I appreciate it. Thanks, Clint. Yeah, thank you. Talk soon. All right. Bye.